everybody and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woitis, and I'm your host. My interview for you today is so special to me. I had the great opportunity to call Linda Ellerby, an award-winning journalist, news anchor, and producer, and a best-selling author, and I talked to her about what it was like to be a woman working in radio in the 1960s, and similarly, what it was like working in television news in the 1970s. This was unreal for me, because if you're around my age, you might recognize Linda as the face of Nick News a kids' news program she produced and hosted for Nickelodeon starting in the 90s and which ran incredibly until 2015 when Linda retired. As a kid, I was devoted to Nick News, and the first time I remember watching it was probably also the first time I was exposed to journalism, and that was the segment on the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. I would have been almost seven at the time. I remember watching the footage of the destroyed building And it was really scary because I had never seen anything like that before. And what was great about Nick News is that it took really frightening events like the Oklahoma City bombing, like 9-11, like school shootings, and explained them to children. And yes, those things were still scary, but Nick News avoided talking down to children. Rather, Linda provided us with reliable, reported info. She taught generations of children how to be responsible readers and viewers and consumers of news. This is really an achievement, and it's even more apparent if you reflect on the TV programs that deliver news now. The fact that someone was doing work for children like that is amazing to me, but we're just scratching the surface. Linda is talking to me today largely about her career in her 20s, which omits a lot of her accomplishments. So I want to make sure I mention them before we get started. Linda LRB has won some of the most prestigious awards in the TV and journalism worlds, including Peabody's, DuPont Columbia Awards, a Murr Award, and more than 10 Emmys. She's been a congressional correspondent for NBC, a co-anchor for the news magazine program Weekend, a writer and anchor for a show called Overnight, which was cited by the DuPont Columbia Awards as possibly the best written and most intelligent news program ever. She has hosted segments for Today and Good Morning America. In the late 1980s, she wrote and anchored Our World, a weekly primetime history series. Her work on Our World won her a National News and Documentary Emmy. And then she and her partner started a TV production company that began making Nick News. I've read two of Linda's books, And So It Goes, and Move On, and I really think you should seek them out and add them to your reading list. It's fascinating to get a glimpse of what journalism was like in the 60s and 70s, and I know for me, I came away feeling very lucky that there were women like Linda Ellerby who went to work and endured a lot of sexism from their male colleagues, and who persisted, and who mentored, and who paid it forward while still recognizing it took a lot of help from other women to get where they are. When I talked to Linda, she was sitting on a beach in Mexico where she lives for part of the year. Can I play a clip for you just to get some more gushing from yours truly out of the way? I've just been sitting here with a huge smile on my face. I feel like I'm talking to one of my childhood heroes. We all have heroes. We all continue to have heroes. Uh, I still have heroes. I get up every morning and and say a little prayer for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I love to let her understand 
for a number of reasons. I, th I thought your premise was a good one. I also noticed that you can write a simple book, and that itself is to be rewarded these days. In regard to that last part, she's commenting on the email I sent her requesting the interview, and she says that I can write a simple declarative sentence, which is high praise. I might add it to my resume. Okay, I'm going to refrain from awkward hero references for the rest of this episode, I promise you. Let's find out what Linda was doing in her 20s. My first job, though, I can tell you, it's not on the resume. I quit college when I was 19 years old. I quit, essentially. I quit to get married. And that was sort of the status thing. And in fact, I did get married. But I really quit. I really quit to run away from home. I, I had come to a place where I did not like the college where I was going. I was not particularly happy there. Uh, and I did not want to go home to Houston. And my mother and I were not getting along very well at the time. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I never started out saying, I want to look at television news. First of all, there was only barely television news when I was growing up. And secondly, there were no women that I could see doing this. I did think that I wanted to write. I am a writer because I was a reader. I'm still a reader. Yeah. I thought I wanted to tell stories, but in my, in my mind, that would be either working for a newspaper or uh, writing fiction, something like that. Okay. Uh, maybe television news never, ever crossed my mind. But when I quit college, I did not have any resume at all, and therefore could not get a job uh, writing for a newspaper. Because I went to work for an employment agency in Memphis, Tennessee. I was 19. I knew absolutely nothing about what I was doing. And I figured out right quickly that what I was supposed to do was to lie to prospective employers about the qualifications of the people who were paying this agency to find them jobs. And I was supposed to say, well, of course Martha can type. But <laughs> she could type 90 words a minute. Never mind that Martha could have never looked at a typewriter before. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I didn't feel right, so I didn't last very long at that. Yeah. I didn't like the lying part. And yet... For my second job, I lied about myself and my own qualifications. Uh, the man I had married when I was 19 graduated college and then he got accepted at University of Chicago for graduate school. We moved to Chicago and the deal was that he would go to school and I would work. So I got a job. I found a job typing the billing for a small trade marketing magazine about advertising. Okay. In, well, it's called SAM, Sales Advertising Marketing, and it reported on trade news and advertising. And I was hired to type the billing and in the old-fashioned edition. Kids, you can write what stories you can on the side. Well, I would say that within six months, I had so messed up their billing <laughs> that... And, and, and the editor in the Time Honor edition was a drunk and fairly useless after lunch, so I got to write stories. And nobody at the company wanted me to type the billing anymore. 
I neglected to tell them that I don't actually know my multiplication table past my 70s to this day. <laughs> numbers and math are just not what I'm good at. Years later, as a reporter, uh, an editor sent me down to cover a bank failure in New York City, and I said, oh, please, I beg you, and please send me. I'm a crime reporter. I'm a political reporter. I am not, I, I can't, I don't know anything about this. And he looked at me and he said, kid, the money went somewhere. What happened to the money? Think of it as a crime story. Now go. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, going back to Chicago, this was in 1964. Okay. That I went to work for this typing the billing and writing a few stories on the side. And in 1964, this was critical to my future, and I did not even realize it at the time. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, passed a law saying that radio stations could no longer simulcast on their FM station the same music and the same programming that were playing on their FM station. Now, in other words, up until then, AM stations that owned FM outlets didn't program for the FM outlets. They just played the same thing on their FM stations they were playing on their AM stations. And they made a lot of money by doing absolutely nothing for the FM stations. Okay. So the federal government passed a law that you can't do this anymore. You have to program the FM stations independently. Okay. I was sent by this little marketing magazine to go around and interview the radio stations the big AM stations, about what they intended to do with their FM outlet. So I get to the biggest black station in Chicago, mm -hmm. which was owned by a pair of immigrant Jews. The racist implications yeah. of this, they are obvious. So they put me in touch with the man who was going to program their FM station now. And I went out to interview him. I took my little pad and pencil, and I went out, and I sat in this man's office. And I asked him, what are you going to do with this FM station? And he said, I remember we're in Chicago in 1964, late 64. I've been working, typing the billing and screwing up the billing for at least six months. <laughs> and he said, Hugh Hester has made a lot of money exploiting women's bodies. We're going to exploit women's voices. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, we're going to play jazz, and all of the disc jockeys will be women, and none of them will be allowed to use their real name, and we will call them Bidhouse. And he said, we could do this because women will work cheap uh, just to get in the door. And I thought to myself, well, you know, it was 1964. It didn't occur to me to think, what is rotten human being you are? All I thought was, well, at least you're hiring women. That's more than most people. Yeah. And so I interviewed him for my little story I was going to write. And I got up to leave, and he said the following to me. He said, did anybody ever tell you that your voice sounds like somebody walking barefoot through a gravel pit? <laughs> I didn't know whether to smack the man. I didn't know what to say. I said, no, no one has actually ever told me this. Why are you telling me? He said, I'm off job is what I'm doing. So I quit the magazine uh -huh, where I was making $65 a week and went to work for WSDM Chicago, the station with the girls and all that jazz. 
for $75 a week. Hey, you got a raise. <laughs> this will show up no on my resume. Uh, the name they gave me to use on the air was Huffy. Uh-huh. Why? Well, because I still had my Texas accent, which, by the way, I have never sought to lose. Uh, <laughs> I have never had a voice lesson, a speech lesson of any kind in my life. Apparently, I just take on the Texas coloration of wherever I am. But at that time, I had a, a silly Texas accent, and they hired me to run the board, which is more exciting, not as exciting as it sounds, so spin the record, uh, make time out the commercials, and go on the air and say, you were just listening to uh, Miles Davis, uh, you were just listening to blah, 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 and talk about the music and go away. You know, don't say much. Just, just say things like, this is Hushpuck, you're listening to WSDN Chicago, the station with the girls, and all that jazz. <laughs> At that time, it did not even occur to me to defend it by being called a girl. Yeah. I was 20 years old now, and I had, I had a job. <laughs> My mother got sick. I moved home to Houston. Uh, I got a job teaching at a small private school, though I had no college education. Yeah. Uh, this was a school for kids who, who had burned their way through most other schools. Oh, God. And their parents had nowhere else to send them. Yeah. I taught history. And then I married again, and... We moved to Alaska. You just got to stop, Amanda. I'll just no, please keep stories. going. Living in a com- uh my husband and I, he worked for uh, the federal government in what was called the Model Cities Program. This was back when the federal government had money to spend on poverty. Yeah. That was part of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, and he was a city planner. We had lived in Eagle Pass, Texas. Now we moved to Alaska for his job, and he became a whistleblower. There was a minister who was in charge of the Model Cities program there, who was essentially skimming money off the program. Oh. And my husband went to the local newspaper and did the right thing. Okay? He did the right thing. Yeah. He also got fired that day. Well. That night, all kinds of people, all friends, all these wonderful people came to our little place where we lived to congratulate him on his courage and I cooked for everybody. I kept making pots of spaghetti, and everybody came and told him how wonderful he was and how brave he was. And he was. I have never doubted that for a moment. When we went to bed that night and he went to sleep, I lay there awake thinking, I have enough food to feed this family for one more week. Yeah. And I had quit work at that point to be a wife and mother. And there really are epiphanies in life. And this was one for me. I, I lay there in bed, and I thought to myself, this has happened because you have put your future and the future of your children and their very well-being in the hands of another person. You will never do that again. And it's sort of like scarlet old saying, if God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again. <laughs> I sort of lay there in bed and went, if God is my witness, I'll never go jobless again. I will never depend on another human being to support me or mine. And how old were you at that point? I was, at that point, 20, I was 25, 26, okay. something like that. So a very okay. young mother, and you had two children at this point? I had two children, yes. Yeah. I had them when you're young and stupid, the way, you know, the way we were talented. Yep. I got a job at the local radio station in Juneau, uh, working the all-night shift, because that's the only job I could get, and fine. Yeah. At least they didn't ask me to type the billing. Good for them. <laughs> Uh, little did they know. Uh, and I, I worked there until, uh, until I was 27. 
Okay. And again, I was working sort of as a disc jockey and also rewriting the news and reading it on the hour. Yeah. And with a couple of other people, I started, we started, we decided to, to start a public radio station, a community radio station. And I wrote a pamphlet called Tired Ears? Question mark. <laughs> and we stood on street corners and we handed this out for people and then asked them for contributions and we filed with the FCC. Now, it actually became the public radio station in Juneau. However, I was not there when it went on the air because when I was 27, my husband explained to me that he had fallen in love with a younger woman. She was 20. They were leaving to go explore America. It was 1972. Okay. Seems like a reasonable idea at the time to many people. Yeah. Except if you had two kids to support. Right. Um, um, so we divorced, and the judge ordered him to pay $200 a month or one quarter of his salary, which that was more, until the children were 18. And he asked my husband to give me the first $200 right there in the courtroom, and he did. And that was both the first and the last payment I ever took. So, I, now, remember I, I was used to rewriting AP stories for the air. Okay. So I sat down, and I wrote every newspaper in the United States. I'm still in Juneau, and... You know, and the wire services, and of course they all said no. I had no college degree and no, essentially no experience. Yeah. As a journalist, the only one who said possibly was the Associated Press Bureau in Dallas. So I went down there, and I went to SMU, and I got the reading list for journalism 101, and I went, you know, read. I got copies of the books, and I sat up for about 48 hours reading. And I took the test, and I passed, and they hired me. The only reason they hired me, let's be really clear about this, okay. was by this time, okay, we're talking about the early 70s now, At this, by this time, the federal government had said to the broadcasters and the stations, you must hire people who are not white, blue-eyed males. Yeah. Now, they didn't say it. The federal government did not say that because it, it's such a forward-thinking outfit. And the, and the networks and stations did not hire us because any of them were forward-thinking outfits. Right. They hired us because of the civil rights movement of the 60s and the women's rights movement of the late 60s and early 70s. It was pressure got us in the door. Yeah. I like to think that I got to stay because I was good at my job, but I never, ever fooled myself into thinking what women think now. Well, I did it all by myself. Oh, no, no, no. I stand on the shoulders of women who walked in the streets, of women who sued in their states in order to own property. I stand on the shoulders of other women. As women today stand on the shoulders of those of us who went before. Real tired of hearing young women say, you know, I, I'm not a feminist because I did this all myself. Uh-huh. No. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think having read your books... Sometimes it's really hard to keep in perspective when you feel like you're burned out at work or you watch the news and you see what's going on or you've, you know, been going to marches and rallies and you're tired and you feel like nothing's changing. And then you read something from back then and you realize, okay, things aren't perfect, but we've made so much progress because of the women who have worked and fought and yes and we're in danger of losing that progress at all times yeah at all times yes and i think it's so important to especially right now yeah for sure some of our basic rights are up for grabs 
including, of course, the right to control our bodies. I'm going to interrupt you here to read a section from Linda's book, And So It Goes. In our conversation, she's about to discuss a part of her work history that involves being fired from the AP when she was in her late 20s. I want to give you a little more context about how it happened. So from her book, other people have written about the letter, but I have not. For years, I didn't even want to think about it. That can happen when you humiliate yourself. The Associated Press was exactly right to fire me. The mistake it made was hiring me in the first place, which, I believe, is how they still feel about it over there. I was hired to write stories for the broadcast wire that could be read on radio and television newscasts. It was December 1972, and the AP had recently purchased word processors for its Dallas Bureau. Some of us used the word processors more intelligently than others. Some of us who were low-tech now were low-tech then. But only one of us wrote on her word processor a long, chatty letter to a friend in Alaska. In it, I maligned a couple of Texas newspapers, the Dallas City Council, the Vietnam War, and a fellow I was dating, topping it off with a little something about a mutual friend who was leaving the AP in Dallas. I believe I suggested that when she left, the bureau chief, who, in fine AP fashion, I named, might rid himself of any discriminatory guilt by hiring a half-black Chicano lesbian who could handle the AP-style book. I was no fool. I hit the keys on the word processor that would give me a printed copy of the letter and would not send the letter out on the AP wire. The letter was mailed and I went home, unaware that I had also hit the key that put the letter on hold in the computer. The following morning, there was a space shot. The AP had invited people from member newspapers and radio and television stations to come to NASA in Houston so they could all see how well the new word processors worked. They saw something in the computer keyed my letter, which was immediately sent out over the AP wire in four states. I was fired only because AP's legal department told them it was absolutely against the law to shoot me, no matter how good an idea it might be. Once again, I had no money, no job, and two children to support, and this time everybody was laughing but me and the Associated Press. I'm having a low-grade panic attack about this right now, but I'm going to let Linda tell us in her own words what the resolution was, and spoiler alert, it does end up working out in her favor. I wrote, I've written so many times and told the story so many times, the fact that I got fired by letting a personal letter get out on the AP Newswire, and that's true. And I was fired for cause. That is true, too. Yeah. They were like the fire me. Uh, and then, in a fluke, I got offered a job in television by a news director of the CBS affiliate in Houston, Texas, who thought the letter I had accidentally gotten let get out on the wire. He thought the letter was funny. He, he liked my writing, and he offered me a job in television news over the telephone. We had never met. Uh, and then, you know, I went to work in television. I never looked back. I never job hunted again in my life. I, I got very lucky. Uh, yeah. I worked in, in Houston at the CBS affiliate for six months and then was offered a job at WCBS in New York. And I was there a couple of years and then offered a job by NBC Network to cover topics. Uh, and then you know, I, I went on, and then I was offered a job by ABC to host and anchor a show called Our World. And then when the show was canceled, I quit, and with my partner, Ralph Jensen, we started Lucky Duck Productions. 
And that was in business 28 years until we retired in December of 2015. And for 25 of those years, I produced and wrote and hosted Nick News. I know that you say that you've had a lot of luck with your career never having to apply for jobs, but did you ever feel like when things get tough, like you wanted to quit? And if so, like, oh, where did so you find... Oh, so many times. Yeah. <laughs> there, honest to God, there are so many days I would have quit if I hadn't had two children. Yeah. That's that, that was your kept motivation. me working. Yeah. I, and truly, that was, people say, you know, well, what motivated you? And I try to explain that you can run just as fast running away from something as you can running for something. I was running away from the idea that I couldn't support my children. Yeah. Nobody thought I could support my children. Nobody. Not my parents, not my husband, not the parents of the woman you left me for. Nobody believed I could do it. And, and I, that is also my good fortune because nothing certain that I would not have had the career I did if it had been left up to me and if I had a choice of whether or not I went to work every day. The choice I made was since I had to work, I wanted to, I was lucky enough to be working at something I liked. I wanted to keep on doing that. But I also was very clear that in order to do it, it, for me, I had to be able to look at myself in the mirror every single day. And that takes a lot of choices you make. Uh, in my case, how I behaved as a reporter, since I made as a reporter. Of course there are those days when you don't want to go to work. Sometimes you just don't want to go to work because you're really tired or you're hungover. Yeah. Or it just seems like anything else in the world would be better to do than go to the damn job. Yes. I mean, you have to expect that. Nobody gets a completely free ride. Nobody. Can we go back and talk about sexism for a minute? Sure. Okay. I love the chapter in your book, and so it goes, that's titled Leave It to Beaver. And at the very <laughs> end, you say that you gave it that name because um, that's what the men at NBC News called your program overnight because it was the first network news program run by women. And that, that was so crazy to me. I feel like I never experienced anything even close to that. Would you say? I doubt that any young woman today, at least I certainly hope, they have not experienced the outright acknowledged and validated sexism that went on back then. Uh, there, there was, it was not unusual at all yeah. for men to catch your butt. Or, I mean, there's very famous journalists, male journalists I could name, who were known for walking through a newsroom and doing just that uh, to women. Uh, and yet, we were not in a position uh, to stand up and make noise because they had the power. They, you know, tell a dirty joke to you or in front of you, make a sexist comment, or things that today would be considered sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, hint that if you slept with them, your career might go better. It all, it all happened. It all happened. When I first went to work, in, in television, and in network television, it was just as true as in local. Bosses would say to me, if you take time off for a sick child or something else family-related, we will know women aren't serious about this work. Most of us, including myself, made a lot of bad choices. There are far too many times I chose going to the job over going to the school flight. Yeah. The fact of the matter is not that life is too short. It's our inability to be in two places at one time. 
And I feel like that's something where workplaces can still improve a lot. Um, absolutely. Yeah. At Lucky Duck, we tried. We worked very hard. We had paternity leave as well as paternity leave. Anybody who had a job that could be done from home, that was fine with us. We did not care. So what do you know now that you wish you'd known in your 20s? I wish that I had stood up more often and yeah. said, my kid is homesick or my kid is a school play and it's important that I do this. Yeah. Uh, although I said how important it is to get up and go to a job when you don't want to. I'm talking about other days when you have, you just don't feel like working. I'm not talking about those horrible choices that women still have to make more than men do about Am I going to get to see my son discover the Pacific Ocean when he plays Balboa in the third grade flight? Or am I going to be in the Congress covering some bill that doesn't have a chance of passing anyway? Those are terrible choices. And there is a reason that the phrase working father is not part of our working language. That's very true. That hasn't changed much. Other than that, I don't really have a lot of regrets. I've been so lucky, so fortunate. And I, yes, I worked hard. Okay, people yeah. say, oh, but you worked hard. Well, you know what? There are women who just worked just as hard as I ever worked, who were not as lucky as I am, and are still working and did not get the opportunity to retire yeah. and be financially secure. I'm, I'm under, under no illusions about the fact that I am lucky as well as a hard worker. So do you feel like success is a combination of hard work, persistence, it sounds like, and maybe and timing, like timing, in my case, yeah. and timing. Timing yeah. was critical. I came along just looking for a job right. that didn't involve waiting tables. I also did that. I forgot to mention that I waited tables for four months, and it's just as bad as that as I was typing the billing, <laughs> but I liked it better than typing the billing. But, you know, the timing was, I became a journalist about the same time that the women's movement picked me up and got me in the door and gave me opportunities that I would not have had otherwise. Of course, those are always opportunities to, to screw up just as well as opportunities to succeed. You know, what you do with it is kind of up to you, but I had the opportunity. I had them. And it sounds like you learn a lot when you do make mistakes you learn about you know success teaches you almost nothing yeah failure teaches you a great deal more than success does if nothing else it teaches you that it feels awful and you don't want to do that again if you're right. work. yeah what was the biggest lesson you learned in your 20s sometimes you can really do what you want to do even if it's by accident you could end up yeah. where you wanted to go and you didn't even know and I, I, along with that is the valuable lesson that you don't have to start out knowing where you want to end up. To leave a little room for chance, circumstances, good and bad luck. You don't have to know your major when you start college. It's another way to put it. Would that sort of be like your advice for young women who yes. want to be journalists today? Yes, absolutely. I, I would say it is not a bad thing. It is considered by many people a really bad thing to, you know, to actually, to start college and not know your major or to start working a job and not know whether you like it or not. Yeah. Working a job is as much of a discovery process of discovering what you don't want to do. Yeah. That's half the battle, figuring out what you don't want to do. From there, you will start to learn what you do want to do. It's usually important to figure out, spend a little time figuring out what you don't want to do, unless you are totally motivated and know exactly what you want in life and did not settle for anything but that one single thing in that one place. 
And then, you know, God loved me. I just wasn't that person. So I read a lot about relationships among sort of like different generations of women in the workplace. Everything anyone has ever said about women stepping over each other to get ahead goes totally against my experience in the workplace. Women in my profession who are already there were universally helpful and kind to me. And I'm talking about Nina Feldenberg. Um, I, I, I'm talking about a whole bunch of women, uh, many of the Cookie Roberts. Uh, I'm talking about uh, some women who are already in broadcasting. Women never, I never saw this women climbing over the backs of other women. I never saw the cat fight. Yeah. I believe that rumor has been started mostly by men. Yeah. Uh, because it suits, it suits a certain stereotype that they would like to think of us. Uh, and as you already know, as I said, I fully believe and pass it on. Many yeah. of the women who helped me, and this you need to know, were not being recognized because they were not on camera. Right. They, they were women who, who worked in the office, uh, women who, who, you know, there weren't that many women in management. They were women who were researchers. They were women whose names you would not recognize, but who were ever so generous in teaching me. I'm going to set up this next part of our talk by reading from And So It Goes one more time. When I read this passage the first time, I had to take a moment to really let it sink in and think about how far women in the workplace have come. And Linda's words are going to be more powerful than anything I have to say here. So I'm just going to get into it. Okay, in this part of the book, she's talking about how she was once assigned to write a story on abortion. It was a story about single-issue politics and not a story about abortion or about whether abortion ought to be federally funded, legal, or performed under any circumstance. But there was one big obstacle. Reuben had assigned me and not Lloyd to report and write the one-hour special, and I knew it was a bad choice because Lloyd Dobbins had never had an abortion. I had. Years earlier, before the 1973 Supreme Court decision made abortion legal, I'd been one of those women young, unmarried, who'd gotten pregnant, then gotten the name of someone through a friend of a friend, paid $600 cash, and waited, terrified, in my apartment until midnight when a pimply-faced man showed up, exchanged code words with me, and came in, bringing cutting tools, bandages, and sodium pentothal, but no medical license I could see. I was lucky. I did not bleed uncontrollably. I did not die. I recovered. I was no longer pregnant. But I wasn't the same either. No woman is. I'd felt it was my decision. I believed then and believe now that a woman has a right to choose. I'd been prepared for the consequences to my heart and to my opinion of myself, but not for the object shame I apparently was supposed to feel. Not having $600 cash, I'd gone to the man who owned the radio station and asked to borrow it. Unable to come with a plausible lie, Feeling somehow that the truth was called for, I told him why I needed the money. He'd given it to me, but not until he'd had an hour of mocking me, ridiculing me for, quote, being a dumb broad to believe some man when he said he was protected. Didn't you know any better? He said it proved I was a slut, like all women who worked when they ought to be married and having babies, not killing babies and taking men's jobs. He said I was lucky he was such a generous boss that he would loan me the money, but he ought to fire me. He charged me 30% interest instead. One time a story that you didn't really want to 
write a report. Yeah. yeah. The story about abortion. About because abortion. I had, had one. Yeah. I had had one when it was illegal. You know, if there are two things that are important to know about this. One, it was not a frivolous choice. And it's not something that I just did and went away and never thought of again, I think, of it to this day, until this day. And two, I believe that I had that absolute right to decide when I was going to become a mother. But I absolutely believe that the state has no business yeah. in a woman's body. I agree. I kept coming back to that story when I was reading your book because you mentioned you had to ask your boss for the money. Yes, abortion. yes. And he stood. He sat there while I stood in front of him, and he shamed me. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. these men all working here, they all have families to support. At that time, I didn't yet. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, he said, well, you're obviously a loose woman. I mean, he essentially said I invited it. Yeah. Yeah, right. I invited it by from coming from a state where nobody taught sex ed to anybody. I think that story stuck with me because I feel like it's not as overt these days, but, you know, we just elected a president who described oh, yeah. oh, molesting yeah. women. and We elected a president yeah. that has said on tape the words, grab them by the pussy. Right. And we have a lot of explaining to do to every little girl in the United States. We truly do. We have to explain how it is we elected somebody who felt okay saying that and how we as a nation thought that was okay for him to say. And so I was reading that story and I just felt could go back to this time so We absolutely could go back. We could easily, very easily. And of course, the sad news is that, that nobody wanted to deal with back then and nobody wants to deal with today is the fact that outlawing abortion Outlawing a woman's right to choose doesn't change. It doesn't stop any of that. It just makes it unavailable to women in lower financial circumstances. Right. It makes it. It makes it. Uh, it makes it unsafe. Yeah. Again. Exactly. You know, if you're any kind of honest, you must put that in the book. Uh, yeah. Because these are these are you know these are choices that not only do women have to make, but then choices as a journalist. Uh, you know you have a big microphone. Right. Uh, are you going to actually not tell the truth on that? Yeah. Are you, how are you, first of all, I had the question of how is I going to cover that story? And the answer is what it always is for journalists, which is it's not your job to be objective. Objective is impossible. It's your job to be fair. And that's not impossible. The thing about the 60s that people forget is we won. We actually won. Laws got changed. People began to have to hire People of color, women, people of various religions, laws that changed in every state. We won. And now there are a whole bunch of people who want to take that clock back. I lived in those times. I don't want my granddaughter to. I, you know, the most telling of any of the protest signs, there's two, but I think some of how I feel there are any two. And one of them is, is the woman, probably my age, woman in her 70s, carrying a sign that says, I can't believe I'm still having to protest this same shit. And, and, and I feel like that. And the other sign uh, that I, I identify with is a teacher I saw that said, you thought I was a nasty woman before? Buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, it's in the hands of my generation now, and hopefully we're going to yes, not disappoint you yes, guys. Yes, it is. 
in the hands, to, uh, your own future is in your hands, and the future of your children, and the future of their children. Yeah. It's, it's not good enough to say, well, I don't like either candidate, so I'm not going to vote. It's just not good enough. Yeah. And you don't get an opinion unless you vote. Yep. Are you working on any projects that I can no, tease? No, I am not. I, okay. I am not working on a book. I am not working on anything at all except I discovered that the day is long enough to fit everything I want to do into it. I, I, I walk five miles in the morning. Uh, I have time for a little yoga. I have time to see friends. Time to cook and entertain my friends. Time to read. Time to lie on the porch and, you know, the swing. Uh, I had time to spend in this wonderful country of Mexico uh, with the wonderful people who live here. I have time to try to become fluent in a second language. That's the only thing I'm really working on. Yeah. Uh, is trying to become fluent in a second language. That is important to me. And I think the other thing that is important to include, because I don't think anyone should ever be embarrassed about admitting this, and that is that I wrote for money. I did not write because I thought I necessarily had anything to say. I wrote to support my children and support myself. And that is good enough reason for anybody. And you did it so well, too. <laughs> well, That's quite you. an accomplishment. On, on some days. On some days, Amanda. to thank Linda Ellerby so much for talking to me. It was enriching. It was inspiring. I just honestly felt very fired up after talking to her and ready to make change and help other women. And I hope that's the way you're feeling right now too. We have a lot of work to do and we gotta get it done. Again, Linda's books that I'm recommending to you are And So It Goes and Move On. Highly suggest checking them out. All right, head over to lifetk.com and sign up for my newsletter, which I'm going to be using as a roundup of news articles about women and the workplace and writing that you should be reading. That's it. Time to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. See you next time.